0: The title of the message today from Romans 6 is A New Kind of Slave. A new kind of slave. Do you know slavery, of course, has often been that, that topic or that title or that that word that elicits deep and understandably strong emotions. And when the Apostle Paul begins to use the word doulos in his letter to the church at Rome, there is without question some emotional response from the people who are hearing these truths communicated. And, and these are responses emotionally that are going to be these visceral responses. I mean, deeply emotional. You say, well, why would they be so emotional when they hear this in the church at Rome? The the British Museum estimates that Rome in the first century was some 50 million people. That is a massive amount of people. And they also estimate that the number of slaves in Rome at this time, first century Rome, while there are 50 million people in Rome, they estimate that there were upwards of 10 million of those 50 that were slaves. Slavery is pervasive in Rome. You say, well, how how did so many people become slaves? Well, through quite a variety of of means. First of all, people would become slaves when when they were conquered by Rome. So the conquering kingdom comes in and, and they take those that are conquered and then they are sold into slavery. So many would have been slaves because they are a conquered people. There's another group of of people quite unfortunate, but it's the reality of Rome, and it's not so different from our day today. A father had the legal power to to accept or reject an infant, so he could simply reject the child, and then there was a legal process that was simply his to, to begin, and the child would be submitted to what was referred to as exposure, exposure. So this means that he just, he can, first of all, he can take the life of the child. So in our nation today, and literally in our world, there are still these raging debates about when does life begin? Well, it begins at conception. It begins in the womb. And and then there are those that say, well, well, listen, I could see a child birthed and then there are actually doctors who would just leave the child alone and, and let the child literally die of exposure. Same idea as to what would take place in Rome. But in Rome, oftentimes a father would feign some sense of mercy and he would take the child. The child would be left sometimes just out front, but often taken to the, the square, the, 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 the town square, a place where businesses would, would take place and flourish. And a child would be taken and simply left there and collected by those who would then raise the child into places of slavery where you could only imagine the purposes. It's another way that people were enslaved in Rome. And then the the next way, which is the most common, and that is people were simply born a slave. They were born a slave. In other words, they, their parents were slaves owned by another and then their children are slaves born into the household. When you start thinking about Paul using the terminology that he's going to use in the passage we're going to see today in Romans chapter 6, this does again bring up these very deeply held emotions. One commentary I read said that it's very likely that more than one half of the church in Rome had either previously been a slave or they were at that very moment enslaved. They were the due loss of the day, the bond slave. If you would look with me in your Bible at Romans chapter six, And we're going to start reading in verse number 17. Now, when you hear the word servant read in scripture, please know that is the word. This is the, 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 the emotional word, the loss that's being read. And when they hear that, this is not just a person who is, you know, make me a servant, humble and meek. This is a person who doesn't have a choice in the matter. I am the servant of, the loss of. But Paul begins to expand their understanding of what does it mean to be a slave. This is... A new kind of slave. Verse number 17, Romans chapter 6. But God be thanked that ye were the do loss, the bond slave, ye were the servants of sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the do loss. The servants, a new kind of slave, of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have received, for as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness for... When ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness. In the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does this new kind of slave actually look like? What, what is he comprised of? What, what, what makes up this new kind of slave? The first thing we're going to see today as we look at this passage is clearly a new conversion a new conversion. In other words, something has been changed that once was this and now is something entirely different. There is this new conversion that takes place that produces a new kind of loss, a new kind of bond servant, a new kind of slave. The Bible says again in our passage, but God be thanked that ye were... Don't you love the fact that it's using this past tense word? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. Paul, understanding what Christ has done, pauses to simply offer this prayer of thankfulness. He's saying we were, but no longer are the servants of sin. Now remember, this is important for us to get. The body of sin that we actually discussed last week is not annihilated, it's still capable of sin, but I no longer have any bondage to do so. I no longer have any obligation to this old master. You were the servants of sin, but God be thanked, something has transformed you. Some may say, well, you know, Paul's talking about, okay, they're still servants. They they just now okay they were the servants of sin they had a master and now they're servants of God they just have another master Isn't this almost some lateral change There's no real difference they were slaves before and they're still slaves now I would submit the truth of the matter is everybody everybody You and me, no matter how boldly protest, that does not apply to me, no matter how strongly we say it or how deeply we hold to it, everybody serves somebody. So choose a good master. You know, at times the person who even protests the loudest that I I don't serve anybody, they are those that are oftentimes most deeply held as a servant of sin. And you know, scripture all throughout helps us understand, you're going to serve someone, so choose wisely. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will love the one and hate the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And mammon, he's saying, listen, you're going to serve someone, so choose a good master. Speaking to the Jewish leaders, Jesus had a rather intense, albeit he was gracious in the exchange, but an intense conversation with the Jews, and they were clearly offended. Listen to what he said in John chapter 8, beginning in verse number 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews, which believed on him, they said, okay, we, we think we understand who you are. He said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, this is a big statement. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, if you trust me, you believe me, you're going to continue in my word, and guess what's going to happen? Freedom. Now, as soon as they heard that, they took a little prideful offense. Whoa, wait just a minute. Are you telling us that we're not currently free? And here was their response. In John chapter 8, verse number Verse number 33, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, verily, verily. When Jesus wants to just doubly emphasize a point, he says, verily, verily, of a truth, of a truth. I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Graciously, Jesus doesn't bring up the fact that that the Hebrew people had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. He doesn't bring up the fact that they had been carried away captive to Babylon. He doesn't bring up the fact that even at that very moment, their coinage has Caesar's inscription upon it. These are a people who are clearly familiar as to what it means to be in bondage, but they, they feign some offense. We be Abraham's seed and are in bondage to no man. And Jesus says that's not really the case. And if you want to cut right to the quick, whoever sins is the servant or in bondage to sin. Now, let me insert this here. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? I would suspect that a vast majority of people in this room right now would say yes. In fact, I would suspect that many people who are watching right now would say, yes, I know Jesus Christ personally. Then let me also ask this, are you living in bondage to an old master? Because that bondage has been broken, but you're living now in a sense with a false identity. You're living in a way that's inconsistent with who you are. You know, sometimes we say, well, I'm addicted to pornography. I'm addicted to my temper. I'm addicted to lust. I'm addicted to, and you start naming the sins. Do you know the Bible says that if you live like your old self without knowing who you are, putting that into your account, reckoning it to be so, and then yielding to the same, you're going to live inconsistent with who you truly are. Well, These men certainly understood that sin did have a grip in their lives personally, as has been the case at one time or another with us all, because when sin gets something, it never wants to release it. What sin gets, it strives to keep, and it goes to great lengths to accomplish the same. There was a French writer who years ago described a rather graphic scene in the province of Brittany that juts out just along the seashore in the, south, in the west of France. Let me read what he shared. A man was walking along the seashore on a bright afternoon enjoying the air and sea. Above the sky was blue, the sun shining, the air invigorating and the view off very beautiful. And the man walks along light leisurely, thinking only of the enjoyment of his surroundings. He does notice, absent mindedly, that his feet sink into the sand rather much. Then they sink a little more until he begins to think it strange. Then, all at once, it flashes upon him that the tide is out. He has walked into a bed of quicksand. With the instinctive dread of a native, he knows well what that means and instantly turns in horror toward the mainland to escape. But his quicker intense movements make his feet sink in deeper up to his ankles. He plunges madly this way and that, calling wildly for help, but there is nobody to hear. And the more he plunges, the deeper he sinks. Now he turns to the left, seeking to find footing and beyond the edge of the treacherous bed of quicksand. He now frantically turns to the right, now toward his knees, now it is over his loins. Then the pressure crowds around his vitals. He stretches out his arms wildly and shrieks piteously for help. The pressure is seen in his face, his mouth, his nose, his ears. And now only his head is above the smooth level of pretty sand, then just a pair of glaring bloodshot eyes, and now a tuft of hair. Then only a smooth stretch of pretty, shining sand. And above the sky is blue, the sun shining, the air so fine, and the sea laughing. The truth of the matter is, sin always desires to keep what it gets. And there is only one release, from the bondage of sin, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. When we look down at verses 20 and then into 21, we understand, for when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Don't you again love the use of the past tense? I once was bound in the quicksand of sin. Once we were, but now I am. This means that by grace, I have been transferred into a new kingdom, free from the grip and the power and the reign of sin. Remember, I still have the ability to sin, but I no longer have the obligation to do so. This happens at the point of new birth, what we call conversion. It is a new conversion, but it doesn't stop there. So let's look a little bit further. We not only see a new conversion, we see then something begins to happen in me. There is a new conformity. And Paul begins to detail this for us. This new conformity, I start to change. Look at verse number 17. The last part of verse number 17 in Romans chapter 6 says, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. This is no longer an outward conformity to the law but an inward conformity to the law of grace. We have to realize that a person whose heart has not been changed is a person who is not a Christian. Let me say that again. We have to at least acknowledge, we have to come to the place where we say, okay, if a person's heart has not been changed, that person is not a Christian. In our culture today, in our world today, we we find it difficult to say what a person is or isn't. But the Bible makes definitions for us. A person who doesn't have a new heart still has their old heart beating in a sense within them. They're still the servants of sin. For a person to truly experience Christ, something radical has happened. They have now a new heart. Ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. I couldn't even do that prior to salvation, but now this new life, I have a new ability. The Bible details this invitation for any who desire this very clearly, and it does so all throughout. Let me give one example. In Revelation 22, verse number 17, the Bible says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, let him that heareth say, come. Let him that is athirst come. And then it says, and whosoever will, whoever wants to, whoever desires this, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Do you know who can be saved? Who can have a new heart? Well, anyone who will. Anyone who wants to, any who will accept the invitation to come. One commentary I read said it this way, the life-changing work of salvation is by God's power alone but it does not work apart from man's will. God has no unwilling children in his family, no unwilling citizens in his kingdom. Do you know what this means? It means, listen, God is not pulling you, kicking and screaming into his kingdom, but he is making an invitation. He is offering, even as we heard sung today, come, And you know, if you desire to come, he with open arms will welcome you into his family. And then something takes place. I start to change. I start to see my life begins to reflect the one who has birthed the same. I start to grow into a likeness of my father. That's his intention for the life of every believer. This obedience from the heart is what separates us as believers. The lack of this is what I believe often allows the religions of the world to come together. In other words, if a religion doesn't provide a person with a new heart, then they come on some equal footing and they can come together and say, hey, hey, let's all agree that we're equally as legitimate as the other. Let's all just agree. Come on, let's sit around a table and let's espouse the virtues of our own religion and see how we all kind of play a part in this wonderful journey that mankind has towards God. Listen, if you don't have a new heart, then you're just kind of coming up with man's ways. You've got man's heart and and one way is as good as the next. There's a way which seemeth right unto man. And so All man's religions can come together and they can say, hey, listen, I believe this, you believe that. What works for you may not work for me, but this works for me. And we can just kind of all get along. But you know, the Bible and its teachings, its doctrines are uniquely singular. They're they're not this pluralistic, let's just find ways that everybody likes and let's go with that. It is this new heart and now I have this new way. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, listen to how even an Old Testament prophet articulates this truth. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I'm going to do something in your life entirely new can a Christian with a new heart live like they used to live well let's ask a couple of questions first of all why would they why would I with this new heart this new home this new father this new prospect this new power this new grace why would I want to Okay, then, then secondly, I think it's an, at least important for us to acknowledge, can a Christian with a new heart, a new life, a new way, can this Christian live like they used to? Well, the answer is yes, but they certainly shouldn't. And the Apostle Paul oftentimes inserts into the book of Romans and elsewhere strong phrases like, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And he proceeds that with a God forbid He's saying, may it never be so. Uh, He's saying, that's not the way it's supposed to be. He's saying, hey, come on, believer, let's live like who we are in the gospel message of a new heart and a new life. Well, man, as I said before, can find common ground over all kinds of things, religions and such, when it is absent the life-transforming change of heart. But... When we have obeyed this form of doctrine, we are literally placed into something that is entirely new. We're changed. There's a new mold, so to speak. And as servants, we have no say over the form delivered to us by God. There's no doctrinal wiggle room. The form of doctrine is established by him. And then we say, okay, let's adopt his form. Because our form of doctrine is delivered by God and not devised by man, we also understand that we cannot partner with others on matters that pertain to doctrine. This is very important, and I hope you'll you'll tune your ears to, to something that is meaningful for us as a church, even in this day. We don't have any wiggle room. What is it that the Bible says this is what we have to do? So we understand that we cannot partner with others on matters that pertain to doctrine, such as the case with the Roman Catholic or the Mormon or Jehovah's Witness religions, nor with those who teach that a person is saved by baptism or by works or by their own way or by a host of other things. Now we can advance common good for mankind We can stand arm-in-arm with people who stand against abortion or human trafficking. We can offer humanitarian relief, but we cannot recognize their doctrine as equally valid. I think sometimes the church has actually removed themselves unnecessarily from a world even considering them because we have removed ourselves from the common good of mankind. Do you know what? The goodness of God, we're told, actually is that which leadeth man to repentance, to salvation. So why wouldn't the church find where can we advance common goodness, but never strive to come together arm and arm with other forms of doctrine? So while, while we stand singularly apart from one, we also understand there are lesser things that we do want to advance for the sake, the cause of the gospel. Our doctrine is established by God and true believers are conformed to it rather than attempting to conform it to themselves. The term form of doctrine. It's a Greek word that actually means the mold. It's it's what they would use when they would pour hot metal into a certain form. And so the form was established, and then something would be placed into it and adopt the form. It's like this, you you don't pour the form into the concrete. You pour the concrete into the form and allow it to harden. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, okay, now listen, we've delivered you a form of doctrine. Paul elsewhere says, if any man delivers to you another doctrine, another teaching, he says, listen, it could be an angel that came from heaven and deliver this to you. You reject it and hold on to this form of doctrine. So he's saying, take the form, pour yourself into it. And you adopt the form rather than what oftentimes our tendency is. It's easy for us to kind of point a finger at the world and says, you know, the world does this. But, but sometimes we do this. Sometimes we try to, I don't know, say there's probably some wiggle room with that. And, and we try to adopt the form to fit us rather than adopt ourselves to fit the form. As believers, we receive that form of doctrine We're never called upon to discover our own truth as many espouse today, but rather find the truth and give ourselves wholly to it. This was what the Apostle Paul um, um, was teaching to a younger pastor, Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed unto thyself and unto doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself, Timothy, this is going to be good for you, and them that hear thee. Timothy, you're gonna be sharing these truths with other people. This is gonna be good for you, that form of doctrine. So teach it, preach it. It'll be protective for you and helpful for those who hear you. So when Paul is instructing the church at Rome, he again goes to doctrine. You have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. You know, sometimes I know this is, this is maybe our mental tendency, Oh boy, there's so much doctrine. You know, we're, we're still in Romans and we will be in Romans. I am so thankful for the way that God, the Holy Spirit constructed a book that keeps strumming the chord of doctrine. You say, well, why is that so important? Because in a world that says you can do anything that you want, we need to be brought back to the form into which our lives are to be molded. Well, what does this new conformity produce? You know, we see this new conversion. Okay, I've got a a new master. I'm I'm the servant of a new Lord. And then there's this this new conformity. I'm, I'm being poured into this form of doctrine. And then lastly, in our passage today, we see a new condition, a new condition. You say, well, what is that? Well, it's free from sin and it's shame. And then we become servants to God to follow the savior. It's a new condition. Okay, depending on whose servant you are, you're gonna find two very different outcomes in life. Look again, Romans chapter six, let's start in verse number 21. Romans six, verse number 21. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. That word always means separation. But now being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life, no separation. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know often we refer to fruit Um, with this word. In fact, we go to that section in the grocery store. We might say, uh, your wife might say, hey, uh, I'll be over in the produce section of the store. And as soon as we hear the produce section, we understand, oh, that's probably fruits and vegetables, because that is what is being produced. And you know, in the Christian life, when it starts to talk about the fruits of, the fruits of, we're really talking about what is it that my life is producing? What are the evidences of my new heart, my new life, this new form of doctrine? You know, often we, we see that, yeah, at one point I was the servant of sin and I had produce that was evidence of the same. But I'm not a servant of sin anymore. I have a new master. I'm a new kind of slave. And guess what else is supposed to take place? Now, I don't produce the same thing. I know I've retained my ability to produce the same thing, but I have now the ability to produce something that I couldn't have produced before. I have something new. You know, when he talks about you were the servants of sin, we have even even something that is demonstrated like, wow, I passed from death, separation from God, to life, no separation from God. He said, remember when, when ye were the servants of sin, and you remember when you were doing those things, whereof ye are now, and then he uses a, a word that we don't use a lot anymore, ye were, you, you are now ashamed. Ashamed. Hey, listen, when you were a kid, did your mom ever say, shame on you? Shame on you. For shame, for shame, for Shame. You there's that idea that, hey, what you did, that's shameful. That's, that's not consistent with who you are. Um, sometimes they'd say, we didn't raise you like that. Okay. Do you know what the Apostle Paul says? He says, okay, now you recognize you used to take pride in something that you now look back on and you say, you are now ashamed. We've redefined a lot of things and we've redefined one word. We've redefined the word pride. I looked it up, I just typed in, you know, define pride. The Oxford Languages Dictionary defines it as this. A feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. The achievements of those with whom one is closely associated or the qualities or possessions that are widely admired. That's the the current definition of pride. So I went back to Webster's 1828 dictionary and I said, define for me pride. Here's how Webster defined pride in 1828. Inordinate self-esteem, an unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority in talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank or elevation in office, which manifests itself in lofty airs, distance, Reserve and often in contempt of others. And then it continues on. It actually then quotes Proverbs 16:18, "Pride goeth before destruction." And then it says, "All pride is abject and mean." And then it quotes another verse, Daniel 4.37, those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. And then it concludes its definition with insolence, rude treatment of others, insolent exaltation. That's our historic definition of pride. We went from that understanding to a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. We've redefined something. And you know what Paul says here? He says, there were things that you were involved in, and you actually took pride in those things. And he says, now when you look back on it, because you have a new heart, you are a new kind of slave. You have a new master, and he's good. He says, now you look back on those things, whereof you once took pride in that, and now you are ashamed. We justify our gossip, our anger, our lack of submission, Our pride, our lust, our bitterness, our sin. And you know, the Christian now, when he is involved in those things, our first response is not to be self-justification. It's supposed to be, I'm ashamed because I'm acting in a manner inconsistent with my new master. It doesn't mean that a Christian never does those things, but it does mean when he does, there is some understanding of, I may have once taken pride in that, but no longer. I am now ashamed why because no longer am I a servant to sin now I'm a new kind of slave I am a servant of the Savior but now Romans six twenty two, being made free from sin and become servants to God ye have fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life everyone serves someone So we must choose our master well. We are all born slaves, servants to sin, but we don't have to remain there. You have the privilege to choose a new master and then live with the resources, the love, yes, the freedom of the same. And you'll find that you are not only a servant of a new master, he also calls you a son, a daughter, part of the family of God? Have you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that can free a man from his old master and place him in a new family, giving him a new identity, a new heart, a new freedom, a new future? If not, whosoever will, let him taste of the water of life freely And if you have tasted of that life, you're now a possessor of the same. May by God's grace, we know who we are. Put it to our account, reckon it to be so, and yield ourselves to our rightful master.